Many of you know that Ann and I recently traveled in Tennessee, Alabama, and Mississippi, and I just, we had a blast. I dove into good soul and southern cooking right here. Uh, this is called breakfast in the south. This is uh, catfish and uh, what God intended okra to look like before you ate it. Uh, that was cabbage slot over there. And then, oh, when God made pickles, uh, excuse me, when God made cucumbers, he intended that they would end up like this right here. These are fried dill pickles, a big platter. It was a side. I ate every one of them. It was fantastic. And you know, while I was there, I thought, we need to get some creative ideas for snacks for Father's Day. And in, in Jackson, Jackson, Mississippi, I especially went to the old, uh, Big Apple Inn. Uh, some of you may have seen an Anthony Bourdain Parts Unknown episode there at the Big Apple. They specialize in pig ear sliders. Oh, come on. <laughs> they are slimy on the outside, crunchy on the inside. What you can't notice is that there's some hair discreetly left on. So it's, it's very efficient. The floss is included in the whole experience. Yeah, yeah. Now, hey, before you get too uppity on me, because trust me, uh, I didn't know well enough to order ahead Many orders had been phoned in. People were leaving with bags of these. These are fantastic. Um, you know, I, w- I was the one that was the uninitiated there. But before you get too culturally judgmental here, just let me tell you, some of you are going to go throw hot dogs on the Traeger this afternoon and feed them to children and grandchildren. Yeah. You know what God put in hot dogs, don't you? Yeah. <laughs> you got it. Yeah. Pig ears. Absolutely. Some of you are saying right now about me, what were you thinking? Which is a fantastic segue to the talk today. What are you thinking is really our topic. Elevate your thinking in part three of four in the book of Colossians. A few years ago, while visiting New York City, our family went to a Broadway play called, I Love You, You're Perfect. Read the last one with me. Now change, yeah, isn't that great? I love that title. Isn't that how many uh, romances and relationships and marriages go? You're perfect, yes. Now change, just a few things. But the truth is, if you've been transformed, you do act differently. Caterpillars crawl, butterflies fly, Same creature, different state. If you are a Christ follower, you have a new new address. You have moved. You are now in Christ above. So your physical location is on earth, and now we're challenged to have both feet on the ground and to have our head in the clouds above. Because the altitude of your thoughts is either going to keep your attitudes and actions chained to the dirt or allowed to soar with Christ-likeness high. But many of us find it much more natural, habitual, and easy to keep our thoughts, actions, behaviors dragging in the dirt. And so Paul asks the question, what altitude are you living at? And chapter 3 is all about that. Let's jump into the first four verses. It says, Since then you've been raised with Christ. 
Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will appear with him in glory. Let's pause for a minute. God is essentially saying, I love you. You are perfect in Christ. Now change. (laughs) Transformation empowers you to think different, to act different. We're going to hear from our football coach, uh, Ian uh, Reynoso, in just a few minutes. You know, coaches, coaches call out the best in athletes. And what does a coach expect each week? Effort and improvement. As an athlete develops skill, she performs better and better. As a football player continues to practice, he grows into the experience of the athlete that is within him. Your potential is the image of the perfect Christ. That's how God sees you now, is transforming you by his spirit presently. And now he says to us, I invite you to start acting like the person that you are becoming. So get your mind out of the old and into the new. Stop crawling and start flying. Our workout coach, Kim, says to us often, get your mind right. Your body can do more than your mind is telling you. Well, after the workouts, I believe her. (laughs) It actually is very true. Your muscles have about 50% more capacity than your mind will tell you because your mind is lazy and it wants to conserve energy. Paul is writing to a group of Christians that have no idea what their potential is. And he is saying to them, you already have far more through the transformation of Christ's forgiveness and the work of the Spirit in you, far more potential into Christ's likeness than you are currently acting. So get your head right and let your actions follow. Now, it's very important here to differentiate between a relationship with God through Jesus and religious systems. Religious systems have the same items. They just have a different sequence. Religion says God may like you if you change your behavior, which could allow you to be transformed. Now, this is the good news from Jesus. God loves you regardless, transforms you inside out, and now invites you to let your behavior catch up with your new identity. And that's what Paul says in the first four verses. You are fundamentally different Stop crawling like a caterpillar when you are destined to fly like the butterfly. Ooh, I'm a boomer. That brings back images of fly like a butterfly, sting like a So it begs the question, doesn't it? Well, if I am transformed and I'm still stuck in old behaviors, how is it that I act out this new and authentic life? And that's what the rest of the chapter is about. First of all, he's going to focus on you personally. Then he's going to talk about us as a community. And then he's going to talk about the family. Here we go. Personally, he says this. Since then, excuse me. 
Oh, is it put to death? Thank you. I need some help. I need some help. <laughs> put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, uh, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. Now, you used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must rid yourselves of all such things, like anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips. And don't lie to each other since you've taken off your old self with its practices and have put on a new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there's neither Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Pause for a minute. He's talking about several sociological uh, identity uh, differentiations, and he is not invalidating any of them. He is just saying, I recognize that you used to have primary identities, and those used to be, you would tell, about your religion or your ethnicity or your cultural practices or your gender or your nationality or your social status. He is not invalidating those. He is just saying that now you have an identity that is superior to those. And if you retain as one or more of those subordinate identities, your major identity, the Christ-likeness thing is going to not work out well. The primary identity is that you are in Christ. And because you are in Christ, that is superior to all of these other identity statements. Now, there's some implications. In verse 12, he uses the word, therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has any grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgives you, and over all these virtues, put on love which binds them together in perfect unity. I'm a simple guy, so I need to reduce it to some ideas and kind of outline it here and summarize it, and I think in threes, so here we go. Kill it, toss it, or wear it. Yeah, yeah. Kill it. First of all, you got to kill the old nature. He says there's some stuff that isn't worth rehabilitation, and if it's already dead in Christ, you just need to let it go, let it die. And he talks specifically about perverted sex and perverted money. You've discovered that sex, money, and power are the three big ones that tend to hold us back or send us forward. Sex, a beautiful gift of God intended to be for pleasurable and procreative. In its perverted forms, ends up hurting you and others. Paul says, just don't go there. Kill the perversion of sexual practice and experience. And then he says about the money thing, by the way, most of us like money, all of us need money, and we can use money for tremendous good, not harm. But the love of money, called greed, actually is so perverse that it is the one thing in the Bible that directly competes with Jesus as Lord in your life. That's why he says greed, which is idolatry. So he says, you just got to kill some stuff off. And the perversions of bad sex and the wrong use of money you just got to kill. Then there's some things that he says, you don't have to kill it exactly, but you sure need to toss it away. <laughs> and here it is. It's your old habits. Did you notice that tossing away an old habit is more of a process than it is a moment? Sure, yeah. 
to get rid of an old habit, you have to overcome it with a new habit. But he says, we've all brought drugs some old habits into this. And let's start with the emotion of anger, which by itself is a tremendous gift from God. You should be angry in the face of injustice, for example. But he says that anger so often spills over into new old habit forms that are harmful, like rage, where anger usually escalates, it's usually louder, and it often has physicality to it. He says, I want you to put aside malice, which is the I'm going to get back at you with revenge. He said, I want you to stop the slander thing, which usually I think for us culturally takes the form of a harmful gossip. And he says, I, I want you, I want you to, to get rid of filthy language, which for me is generally experienced at about the third hole in a foursome. Yeah, yeah. So here it is. Stop lying as well, he says. And so, like, if Marie Kondo was here today, she'd be very happy. She would say, you know, take your old habit of, uh, of malice, which is revenge and getting back, and just hold it and say, it doesn't spark joy. And then just throw it away while you thank it for going away. There you go. There's some things you just should kill off. Don't mess with them. They'll destroy you. There's some things that you should toss away with some new habits, and then there's some things that you should wear. We do not want you naked. So here's the new wardrobe that's been provided. Please put it on. And if you do, it will be the new set of habits. As we read it, it sounded an awful lot like the fruit of the Spirit, doesn't it? This is Holy Spirit activity in your life. And he says, your new wardrobe looks like this. Instead of rage in your anger, think with compassion about this person and where they're coming from. And you can choose to dial back the escalation and you can choose to express kindness. And you know, have a little humility here. They may actually have a point of view that's valid and they may be more right than you. And you know, you can be gentle through this whole process and you can be patient even if they misbehave because that's what grace is all about and making space. And do you know that even if they've blown it royally, you can forgive them and over the whole thing, just love people with all you've got. It ties it all together. Wow. So on this Father's Day, let me ask you, would have your experience at home been different if your parents had consistently expressed those qualities? And as a parent, a grandparent, or if you don't have kids but hope to, think about the benefit to their lives if you created a relationship and an environment for them where that was the context of clothing. Our family just dresses this way. I know that others do that, but the Roth family way is to do this. What a beautiful thing. So he says, kill it, toss it, wear it. And now he's going to transition it to, well, some things to feel and say and saying. Here we go. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body, you were called to peace. And be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms and hymns and songs from the Spirit singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Here it is. Feel it, say it, sing it. First of all, feel 
the peace of Christ. Hmm. He says, let the peace of Christ rule. The word for rule is like a, an umpire calling balls and strikes. It says, if you want to know what God's will is for you and you're confused between a couple of options, let God's peace call whether it's a ball to let go or a strike to swing at. Let the peace of God call balls and strikes in your life. Now, as an introverted Western male, individualist, I would be very happy if it said, let the peace of God rule in your heart, singular. But notice that I don't get that slack. It's plural. God really doesn't care about how peaceful you are about something all by yourself. But he really reinforces with with confirmation the shared peace of God in our hearts. So if you're a single person, you have some friends that you can do life with, you can talk about and bounce things off of. And there's this sense of questions and conversations and out of that may be a shared sense of peace. If you're a married person, certainly a spouse would be one of those people. It may be the guys that you hang out with once a week and have coffee with and insomnia, but let the peace of God rule in your hearts. There's something here to feel as you sort your way and discern your way through life in Christ. And then secondly, he says, there's some things that I want you to say. Instead of lying and gossiping, that's the old stuff, I want you to practice saying thank you. And that gratitude is also going to be supported with words that inform and motivate other people. So as you speak, think about those three possible benefits. Does this express gratitude? Does it provide helpful information? And does it encourage? The word there was admonish one another. An admonishment brings encouragement. It gives us power and courage and focus to move forward. And then he says, something profound happens when you sing. Now, stop right now. Some of you are saying, something profound happens when I sing. Other people are horribly irritated, right? No, no, no. Now, this is going to be very, very interesting here because this includes all of us, the people who hate singing, the people who don't know how to sing, the people who don't know the songs, the people who don't like the genre of music, the people who don't like the ones that are leading, the people who can't sing, carry a tune, and the people who love it. All of us are in this picture as he talks to the community. I want you to sing songs that express wisdom to others and gratitude to God. Now, some of you are saying, Jared, you don't get it. I'm exceptional here. Well, you may be exceptional in some regards, but not on this one. No, you say, no, you don't get it. I, I don't really connect with God using the art form of music. I can relate to you. And now I'm going to be mean. So stinking what? It may be a spiritual discipline for you to sing, and the person next to you may do it with a lot more emotional joy, fervor, and skill and ability. But all of us get to participate in this thing when we're in community. God has chosen that form of art expression for something profound to happen when we are together. When we sing, and he doesn't care about the genre, songs, hymns, songs of the Spirit. He's just throwing three forms of music they were familiar with. I don't care what form of music it is. I care that when you're together that you sing. And here's what happens. It's not about you. 
It is about us, and it is about him. And when you sing, I get wiser, and I am encouraged. And when you sing, God gets thanked. Powerful stuff. So some of you are saying, oh, man. Uh, Well, I'm going to hit everybody else before I'm done here today. So we need to move on. Here we go. And I'm going to read the last passage we're going to read today. We're going to spill into verse 1 of chapter 4. And I'm going to read one of the goofiest sounding sections of the Bible for many people. And I want for you to let it sound and feel as odd or awkward as it might. Because it is. And after I read, I'm going to invite in a moment uh, Coach uh, Reynoso to come up and he's going to talk for a few minutes. And then I'm going to come back and I'm going to pull it all together in some ways that I think will be really interesting and I hope helpful. This is what it says. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and don't be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything for this pleases the Lord. This is Father's Day. Should I read that one more time? Yeah, we really like that one today. Yeah. Fathers, do not embitter your children, or they will become discouraged. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, and do it not only when their eyes is on you to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart. Working is for the Lord and not for human masters. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs. There's no favoritism. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair because you know that you have a master in heaven, period. Wow, what an interesting description of a family. Notice for just a moment, verse 21. It's about parenting. It says, fathers, do not embitter your children or they'll become discouraged. I've invited today uh, Coach Ian to come and share with us for uh, just a few minutes uh, because he's, uh, he and his family and uh, his kids are not only such a great part of Evergreen, but because of uh, the role and influence that he has in the community. And before uh, Coach comes, I'm looking across and I'm seeing several of you uh, who are not only educators, but are also coaches in various uh, schools around our extended community as well. And we just uh, say thank you for the work that you do. Now, I know that Ian was called by God to serve in Jesus' name in education and in coaching. Uh, Ian's story, which we'll have him tell more of someday later, was uh, in Southern California as a middle school kid. Uh, he uh, messed up a few times. And fortunately, in high school, he found football and track and field to really help give him some context and some direction in life. As a Christ follower, uh, he was diligent. He uh, won a a full scholarship to play football at the University of Oregon. After graduating, he pursued his master's degree in education from George Fox. He began teaching and coaching along the way. Five years ago, he came to Glencoe and uh, worked his way through the ranks. And last year, just uh, this year, completed his first year as head football coach. Over the course of the year, uh, Coach Ian head football coach, a co-head track and field coach, uh, runs the weight training and conditioning uh, program uh, year-round from 6 to 8 a.m. in the morning, is the uh, leader and faculty sponsor of Fellowship of uh, Christian Athletes, and teaches uh, six classes for his course load. 
and is often asked, as those of you that are coaches know, uh, parents in our culture have so attributed trust and confidence in you to help build character in their children's life. Uh, Coach is one of those who's frequently asked by parents, can you share with me some things that I can help my student move forward in life? He's answered that question a lot of times. We're not giving him enough time today to do that, but a few minutes. Would you welcome Coach as he comes? Thank you, Jared, so much for uh, having me up here and allowing me to come speak on this uh, fantastic day. I'd like to say uh, congratulations and thank you to all the fathers out here. Happy Father's Day to you all. Um, yeah, round of applause. Okay. Um, it's one of the greatest gifts that I have is to be able to call myself a father um, four times over. Um, and it's something that because of the men and the influences that I've had in my life, um, growing up, it's something that I've always strived for to make sure that I, I did the best I possibly could to be that father as my job. Um, as Pastor said, uh, there are these really five things that I'm going to be talking about um, and how we can support our youth um, from a physical standpoint, an academic standpoint, emotional, a relational standpoint, and then spiritually. Um, the first one as a, as a coach and as a teacher that I see tremendously that we need to do as a community for our uh, youth growing up physically is uh, engage in in handshakes, engage in eye contact, engage in communication with people where we take these uh, young kids who are growing up and we are teaching them how to make eye contact and say hello. I've had a lot of uh, opportunities to interact with professionals um, in the area, from Intel, from Nike, um, a lot of university representatives or professors. And the big thing that they say, and I tell my students this all the time, the big thing that they say is lacking in high school students going on to college or college students going on to the real world is those soft skills. They have people that come in for a job interview, and they walk in and they say, oh, hi, Aaron, nice to meet you. Have a seat. Thanks. And they sit where a lot of us have been raised and know that you walk and say, oh, hi, I'm Aaron, nice to meet you, and you shake hands and you make eye contact and you engage automatically. That's something that as coaches, as athletes, as parents, as people in the community that might not have kids but that can interact with kids, it's something that we need to continue to push um, socially and, and physically to help support our, uh, our youth growing up. I love the word that uh, pastors use of habits. I preach habits constantly with our athletes and our kids because those habits are what build us as people and what help us create our successes or our failures in life. Um, also, in making eye contact is facial expressions. I, I'm very animated when I teach and when I talk and when I coach. But it's important because it stimulates our minds and our youth as um, as kind of old this might sound are so addicted to these cell phones that I currently use as my notes, um, <laughs> that we spend so much time looking like this and we don't make eye contact. We don't get facial expressions from phones, although companies have tried to do that with emojis. Um, we don't have that same type of interaction, that same type of uh, stimulation mentally. So it's really important that we engage with our, our uh, people around us in that way. Uh, academically, it's, it's really wisdom. Uh, Will Smith, actor, uh, musician, 
had a statement that I heard before where he said, if you want to be successful in life, read. Read books. Read tons of books. As many books as you can get a hold of, there's not a single mistake that has been made on this earth that isn't documented somewhere in a book. And if you read a book and you see that mistake, you can address it in your life and make sure it doesn't happen to you. And there's so much wisdom in this room alone that a lot of our kids need to have that experience laid out before them, before they get to that spot. They might still make that mistake, but hopefully at that point, they'll go back and say, oh, I remember so-and-so at church or my family friend or my brother or my sister or my father who told me this story before, this is how I should act in this situation. Um, but so many kids that don't have that support in their life kind of get to that mistake and say, power through, <laughs> and they, it might end up sending them off on, on a wrong path. Um, also, just encourage them to grow, encourage them to stimulate themselves mentally. Um, in school, I was talking with a father the other day. And I said one of the biggest things, uh, the biggest faults that I had in the education system for myself is that when I, I learned really young, I didn't need to learn math. I needed to learn how to pass the math test. Um, and as a teacher, I really try to make sure that my kids are learning how to apply what we're teaching and not just figuring out how to finish the project so they can get an A. Um, So that learning aspect is extremely important. Emotionally speaking, be real. Be real with the people around you. Be real with our youth. Be real with our high school kids. That has been the theme of my life for the past two months with our seniors who are graduating. Be real. Mr. Nosa, I'm really excited to go to Oregon State next year. It's so awesome. Like, yeah, cool. Do you have roommates? Yeah, my three friends from high school. All right, so this is what's going to happen. There's going to be dirty dishes. There's going to be clothes left out. There's going to be smells that you've never smelt before. And there's all these different things that I'm trying to be real with these kids to tell them this is what life's going to have ahead of you. Um, So many times kids get caught up in uh, what they want things to be, and we need to make sure that we're telling them the truth and, and saying, still go through it. It's okay. But when you get there, have some of that wisdom, have some of that education to make sure that we're successful and know how to handle it when the time comes. I had a football player from Twalton get a hold of me five years ago and say, Coach, I had the worst year with my best friend as my roommate, but we're still friends because you talked to us about it before we moved in with each other. So it works out. Um, Relationally, uh, one of the reasons why my wife and I came back out to Hillsboro because she was born and raised here um, and got involved with the Glencoe community, uh, be a family, be a village um, I talked about that with our um, men's group last year. Just, just be a village in terms of supporting people around you. Um, reach out to church members, to family members here, uh, to family friends, and be willing to give support or be a sounding board to their kids when they need someone to talk to. Um, also, in terms of uh, emotionally and relationally being uh, being real, my wife and I talk a lot about this kind of uh, controversial concept that I am not supposed to as a teacher tell a kid that I love them but I do it a lot and I give context to it because when I have 170 track athletes that we're talking to that might go through a struggle or something I want them to know that they are loved and they are cared for because they might not hear that at home they might not hear that with people around them and they have the context where I can say congratulations, great day. Today, I'm proud of you all. You did a great job representing our school. I love you all extremely. And they can hear that and then hear me tell my wife, honey, I love you, how are you? And they know that those are two different things. 
um, but that they can feel supported. And then if they need support, they can come to me or her or other coaches or other teachers or people in their families to be able to connect with. And then last thing is spiritually. Um, the first thing I have is just pray for people. The, the power of prayer is, is amazing. I have had just life-changing experiences in my life because of prayer and family friends of mine around myself just due to the power of prayer. Um, and understand that, it, I, as I tell our, our student-athletes in FCA, you can't have a relationship with a friend and never talk to them. So be in constant prayer with Christ and having those conversations, but also speak freely about your faith. Um, speak in terms of uh, speaking freely, also speak compassionately about your faith and share your faith. Um, I'll wrap up with one of my favorite things is my first year teaching at Newburgh. I'm teaching a class, and I had this girl who's been homeschooled for four years, and she comes in about four weeks into the year. She walks up to me into the school and goes, Mr. Renoso, I have a question for you. I said, go for it. She's really shy, and she says, are you, um, are you, do you listen to Chris Tomlin? And I said, yes, I do listen to Chris Tomlin. She goes, okay, I thought so. And she's like, have a good day, and walked out. And I was like, okay. <laughs> I was like, she was asking me if I was a Christian. And she was asking me if I was a Christian, not because I was wearing a cross, but because of how I was living and how I was reaching my kids. And I think if we can do that with our communities, um, there's uh, amazing things that the power of Christ can do. So um, work with our youth, work with people around you, work with your communities, and thank you so much for giving me the time. Thank you for your great work. Others of you that serve in similar ways, thank you for the amazing, noble, spirit-inspired work that you do. On any given year, uh, Ian has direct first-name relationship with over 650 kids through those various platforms that I just described. What What an amazing thing. Well, before he came, I read a pretty amazing passage, didn't I? And uh, what I'd like to do today is I'd like to talk with you about uh, making your family healthier. As we mentioned, God, first of all, says you're transformed, you're perfect, now change. (laughs) Individually, here's some things to do together in community. And now he goes to, here's some things that you can do in your family unit. And he speaks to them in their own immediate context. Now, that context, what we read was Paul's description of the Greco-Roman family structure 2,000 years ago. It was a mess. It was not what God intended. It was not what God created. That's very clear from the the, uh, first two chapters in Genesis. It's very clear from the end of the Bible when we see how things will be when God restores them. It was a family system that was broken, confused, unjust, abusive, oppressive, It was not God's plan. It was a social construct. And Paul speaks to people who are coming to faith in Christ, who are living locked down into that structure for life and asking the question, how can I live a loving and just life in the middle of a broken, unloving, unjust social construct? And he gives them advice on how they can move forward being faithful to Christ within 
their social system. Let me describe the Greco-Roman structure, uh, uh, family structure. It was called the oikos, that's a Greek word, and it was the basic unit of culture in that time of the world. This is how we could briefly describe it. The man was the head of the household. By the way, just because I want to and I'm impish, if that's a familiar phrase to you that you thought was in the Bible, check it out this afternoon. You'll notice that it's not. It's kind of a part of our religious mythology that that phrase uh, is a biblical phrase. Second, women had no political rights, and business was conducted on a woman's behalf by her husband or her father. Marriage was arranged by her father. Uh, Women rarely left the home. They lived in segregated quarters and were rarely seen in the public section, rarely left the house. Now, her husband could have an affair as long as it was with a slave or a woman of lower social class. But if he caught her with her partner in an adulterous relationship, he had the legal right to kill both of them. Children was regarded as polluting and could not be uh, done in many places. At birth, the father decided whether to keep the child or expose it and let it die. Far more girls were killed in in emphasize than boys. Fathers had the right to sell their own children into slavery, and their powers included the right to arrange marriages, require that their children divorce, disown, sell, or kill his child. A slave was someone who was deprived of their liberty and forced to submit to an owner who may buy, sell, or lease them. Slaves were used domestically and in agriculture, but thousands of them worked in mines or in rock quarries. Athens, as a city unit, owned 800, excuse me, 80,000 slaves that they leased out to quarries and had a negative income tax for, for Athens residents because of the income that was earned by the slaves that the municipality owned. In addition, in Athens, an average family had two to three slaves living in it in that oikos system. Slaves were considered property and had no legal personhood. They were subjected to beatings, sexual exploitation. Many were prostitutes, torture, and execution. And you thought your family was messed up. And Paul writes to people who only know that family system and who, with rare exceptions, have no way out of that system, and who in most cases are going to perpetuate that basic unit of their culture. And they said, please help us know how to live for and like Jesus as a transformed person in the middle of this broken mess. And so he gives them the advice that we read moments ago. Now, I want you to notice that Paul talks far more about slaves than masters than he talks about marriage and parents. Let's just be thoughtful and deduce for a moment. Does that mean that he thinks that slavery and owning slaves is more important than marriage and parenting? It's ludicrous. Obviously not. But apparently he does say people that find themselves in those relationships have an awful lot of junk to try to sort themselves through in this cultural context and being a Christ follower. The short of it is this. God has used broken humans in horrific social systems across biblical history 
who have made bad decisions to demonstrate and to expand his kingdom. God using broken humans and systems in a redemptive way should not be confused of God's validating and authorizing those broken systems. So when you read the Bible in its context, we read about some horrible parent failures, for example, and it's obvious to us that we're going to emulate the faith but not the practice of some of these folks. King Saul threw his spear at his son while they were at the dining table. Judah hooks up with his daughter-in-law thinking he was renting a prostitute. This is a whole Jerry Springer moment back in the Bible and one of the patriarchs. Come on, let's get real here. Joseph lost Jesus for three days and didn't even notice for the first two. (laughs) Parents have not always gotten this thing right. We understand, don't we? Read the Bible with some discernment here. In fact, there were and are all kinds of social fails, individual and cultural. Paul says, in Christ, you're perfect. By his spirit, you're transformed into Christ's image. I want you to develop new habits of living out that redeemed personhood, but you're gonna have to do it in broken social systems. But learn to live a life that is one of love and justice and press love and justice into every broken place and relationship that you can. Well, let's wrap by kind of pulling it all together here. The best thing that Ann and I did as we're trying to make sense in our life for our kids was to give our kids a relationship with Jesus. So we passed on our love for God and our faith in Christ, and that resulted in courage and strength for them to live it out too. We didn't do it perfectly, but we did some stuff that we think was helpful. And I'd like to leave you with a few recommendations today. First of all, you've got to live it. Love for God is more caught than taught. If you're on fire, they'll probably catch the fire too. Your kids will probably catch whatever you have, whether for good or not. If you want your kids to love God, you're going to need to do that passionately. If you want them to trust Jesus, they're going to need to see you do that regularly. Everyone knows that actions speak much louder than words. So we tried to live it. We lived our faith, and our kids, who are now adults, lived theirs out too. They caught it. We lived our faith by personally spending time with Jesus. One-on-one, reading the Bible, praying, journaling, our kids do the same. We lived our faith by making church a priority. If it was Sunday, we were there. We were a sports family, but Sunday took priority and sports was second. We watch our kids doing the same. We lived our faith in our marriage. Ann and I strove to express love and respect for each other. Our kids watched and we're watching them do the same. We lived out our faith in the way we handled our finances. We essentially for life have given God the first 10%, and then we use some of the other money left over to be kind to the poor and the needy. We see tremendous generosity in our kids. We lived out our faith in the way that we handled our failures. 
that we, like you, didn't always get it right. But when we didn't, we tried to own up to it and ask for forgiveness, and they did. And now they do the same. We wanted to live our faith out in the way we treated others, with love and with respect, with generosity, with dignity. We see them doing the same. Now, I'm not saying that we lived it perfectly, but I will tell you that we lived it genuinely, that we lived it genuinely, and our kids caught it. The first piece of advice that the old guy would give you today is, you've got to live it. The second was, then you can teach it. You can talk about it, and you should. We did. We talked about Jesus and the Bible and our faith and challenges of science and challenges with other worldviews and religions and ideas and values. We talked about what it means to live our faith out. I don't think we were very preachy. We tried not to be, but we talked about it naturally. When our kids were little, we tucked them into bed with Bible stories or reading the Bible. We, we taught them how to pray. We prayed with them. We let them pray. We talked about Jesus. So first you live it, and then you teach it. And then isn't this true for all of us? We all need help. We really do. You know, what we gave our kids just reinforced and supported what many people were helping us do. Our kids grew up in great churches. They were a lot like Evergreen. They, our, our Hillsboro kids are growing up here in this church. Our Seattle grandkids are, are growing up in a church where their mom is the kids pastor and their dad is a council member. You know, our E-Kids team here really is. The, the staff and the volunteers are world-class and they are not only thoughtful and skillful and well-trained and engaged and loving, but they're using state-of-the-art resources that are biblically solid and are informed by leading-edge educational practices. And you know we make church fun for kids. I love hearing this story. Some of you parents have told me we were not going to go to church. Today we were going to go to X first, and our kids said to us, we have to go to church first. I'm so glad you're being led by the little ones. It's awesome. Our kids, as they were growing into uh, their middle school and high school years, had youth ministry leaders that loved them and taught them and led their small groups and hung out with them and stayed in touch with them. And our youth leaders here at Evergreen are supporting you and reinforcing you and especially are there for you when life heats up. And the invitation that Ann and I provided at the beginning of this talk to engage this summer and filling some of those gaps is because we want people to enjoy summer and have time away, and we do not want the quality of what happens for our children and youth to drop one inch during the process. That's why we need you to step in this summer. Our extended families were so helpful. My parents who prayed and modeled a life of Jesus for our kids, and brothers and sisters and aunts and uncles and cousins that all provided an environment of love and support and encouragement and acceptance that made it easier for our kids to follow Jesus. And a special shout out to Ann's mom, Bonnie, today, which loves it when I call her by name and point her way. <laughs> Bonnie, who's lived in our home for 23 years and has been much more than a grandma and a great-grandma to our family she is truly a mother in the faith, and our kids had the benefit of knowing how to follow Jesus, not by just seeing mom and dad, but grandma too. Hmm. I wish every family had a Bonnie.
So dads, it's Father's Day. The best thing you can do as a dad is to live a Jesus is Lord life. The best gift you can give is a following Jesus model. The best gift you can give is to know Jesus and to follow him passionately. Hey, guys, get your head out of the dirt and into the clouds. You are transformed in Christ. Live like it. I'm not a real poetry guy, but I found one that I really loved, and I'm going to leave it with you today as a gift. My father is patient and kind. My father is not envious, never boastful. My father is not arrogant. My father is never rude. He's not self-seeking. My father is not quick to take an offense. My father keeps no record of wrongs. My father does not gloat over my sins, but is always glad when truth prevails. My father knows no limits to his endurance, nor to his trust. My father is always hopeful and patient. You recognize that from 1 Corinthians chapter 13. This is the God you need to get to know. He loves you. He says you're perfect. Now change. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for your overwhelming love for us. Thank you, Jesus, for being the perfect image of the invisible God. And thank you, Holy Spirit, for empowering our lives, transforming us inside out, and giving us the courage and ability to live that transformation out in new patterns and behaviors and ways that express your heart of generosity and love and mercy. Today, Lord, we receive your forgiveness for our sins. We receive the fullness of the Holy Spirit to heal, transform, and empower our lives. We receive gifts of your Spirit to be of service to others. And we ask for your courage to live like you in Jesus' name. Would you say it together with me? Amen. Amen. Let's stand and let's sing.